Okay, uh, good morning everyone. Good to see you. If you haven't met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church. Um, if you've got a Bible, could you go to 1 Kings chapter 18? 1 Kings chapter 18, we will get there in just a moment. Get there in just a moment. Last night we had a men's event um, here at the church, which was fantastic. Our man versus fire event, where a bunch of guys get together and we have some great food and basically we burn stuff, um, which has been brilliant. Um, and so that was last night. So I just want to say a big thank you to the guys who ran that, Jeremy and David and Mike and Steve and Vio, who kind of helped put that all together. So thank you guys for getting involved in that and doing that. That was brilliant. <laughs> the question, the burning question I have to ask is, Vio, did you manage to burn everything? Because you were on a mission last night. You didn't. There's still, there's still wood left to burn. He was... To, they're going back today, all right, because <laughs> Vio was on a mission last night to make sure everything got burned, and he was doing a brilliant job. And so thank you guys um, for that. Appreciate that. All right, um, before we get into today's sermon, the wellbeing course, which we've been doing here um, as a church over the past few weeks um, with, uh, in our life groups, and we've been giving you the book, which you read on your own, and then you do the life groups. We have just finished week three today. I read that um, this morning, which was a week on emotional well-being. So we've looked at a well-being mindset, we've looked at the physical well-being, and this week, just gone, we looked at emotional well-being. We have the video we watch in Life Group, we discuss it, we have the book that we do on our own and spend time thinking and praying about that. That was excellent. This coming week is actually a um, catch-up week. So if you're thinking, I'm behind, I've missed stuff, that's fine, we've got a whole week this week, so we've got the prayer meetings, so there's no Life Groups, come and pray with us. Um, you've got a week then to catch up and review. I know for me, having finished the emotional stuff this week, there's some stuff I need to just go back and think about and from the first week with um, the physical well-being to keep on top of. And so it's really helpful just to be processing how we are doing with life at the moment. So if you haven't got the book or you're not sure, you still can come and get plugged into one of our life groups and just join the journey where we're at. So please um, get involved in that if you haven't. So get the well-being book. Come and talk to me if you need a copy. And we'll get on with that. Right, let's go back to 1 Kings 18. This sermon series, Well With My Soul, we're looking at the life of the prophet Elijah. He's a character from the Old Testament. In our Bibles, quite a significant character. He was a prophet of the Lord, used mightily by God um, in the life of the nation of Israel. And we've been going through his life looking at some of the things that uh, God did with him and how we can learn from that and how it can be well with our soul. If you've missed any of them, you can go online and catch up um, and just find out where we are on that. So they're all available for free. Just a quick recap of the story so far. The people of Israel have turned away from worshipping the Lord, the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and they've gone after a false god, one in particular, God Baal. And he is the God of storms and the rain, and he was a false God. And the people of uh, Israel had turned away from the God of Israel and were worshipping this false God. And this was particularly because the king and the queen at the time, Ahab and Jezebel, will come more to them later. They were uh, an evil couple. They weren't good for the people of Israel, and they weren't good for them worshipping God. And Jezebel in particular had said we should worship Baal and brought in the, the worship of these foreign gods which had all sorts of abominable practices associated. It was a horribly, thoroughly evil thing. And as a result of that, Elijah, the Lord's prophet, had gone to the king and said, because you have 
left the worship of God, there's going to be no rain in the land, which was a direct confrontation with Baal, who was God of storms and rain and fertility. It's like, nope, he's not God, there's only one God, so there's going to be no rain. And for three years, there was no rain in the land to prove the supremacy, a supremacy of the God of Israel. And in that time, we've followed Elijah, he's gone to a place of obscurity, a place of refining, and then finally to a place of confrontation with the evil forces in the land. And what we looked at last week with Jeremy was the confrontation between Elijah and the Lord versus King Ahab and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And there was a showdown. And what we found at the end there was the Lord came in power, proved that he was supreme. Um, The nation of Israel who were there, they turned back to him, worshipped him, and they got rid of the prophets of Baal, and it was a great victory. And so we're going to pick the story up, verse 41, immediately following that. All right, the big idea um, for this morning is there are highs and lows um, as we follow the Lord. There are highs and lows as we follow the Lord. So let's start looking at the highs. I'll start reading uh, verse 41. It says this, and Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Now, the um, Elijah and the Lord have proved they're superior to Ahab and the prophets of Baal and the worship of Baal because we've had the fire coming down incident and the worship of the God of Israel has come back to the king. But Elijah's still in charge and he is directing the king as a prophet does by speaking the word of the Lord. And he said, go up and eat and drink. And this is the final sign of the renewal of a covenant. A covenant is an agreement and God had a covenant with Israel, an agreement between the two that they would worship him and he would look after them and provide for them. They had broken the covenant because they'd gone up and gone after Baal. They'd committed a spiritual adultery, if you will, and they'd gone and worshipped a foreign god, a false god. But now they'd come back to God. There'd been a subject on the altar, the bull that was killed. There was the fire of God. The wrath of God fell. And then the people of God had turned back to worship. And then as a sign of that covenant, they would eat together. It was a sign of fellowship. It was a sign of connecting. So Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat now. You've turned from worshiping Baal along with Israel. Go and eat. That's what he goes. Because there is a sound of rushing rain. And so this would be a demonstration again of the Lord's sovereign power because there's been no rain in the land. And Elijah's saying, actually, it's coming back. What God has stopped three odd years ago is now to return. And the king obeys him. And we read on, it says, And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And so what we've got here now, we've got the fulfillment of the word of God that he had spoken to Ahab many years before. Because we go back to the beginning of chapter 17 where we started this series. And it said Elijah had turned up and he basically said, because the Lord, because you've worshipped false gods, there's going to be no rain in the land but by my word. So there's been no rain. And then if you look at the beginning of chapter 18 verse 1, the Lord spoke to Elijah and said, it's now time for the rain to come. After all those years, it's now time to happen. So God has spoken, saying there's going to be no rain. He's spoken, saying actually the rain's coming. 
and now is the time when it's going to come. And in response to the word of God, what Elijah does is interesting to note. He separates himself. He goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, a place to meet the Lord, because that was a place of worship. That's where the altar was. And so God had spoken. His response is to go away to a place of worship. He then humbles himself. He bows down. He doesn't take the word of God, kind of presumes upon it. He still goes before God as just a man, before the one who can do everything. And he bows down and he, he prays. And then he gives specific instructions to his servant. He says, go and look towards the sea. Because if the rain's coming, that's where the clouds are going to rise. And they're going to come across the land. Go check. And he is persistent. He says, go seven times. If I was the servant, I'd be knocked by number three. I've looked. And Elijah says, go again. No, there's nothing there, Elijah. Elijah's praying, go again. But being a servant, you do what your master says. And so he goes, and he says, on the seventh time, a nice divine number there, he says, there's breakthrough. There's a little cloud coming out like a man's hand. I don't know if that means it's, got, it's wispy and there's like fingers. Who knows? But it's, it's coming. So in response to the word of the Lord, Elijah goes and prays it back to him. He doesn't just presume that God said that's going to happen. He actually takes responsibilities. I'm going to pray this in and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep persisting in it. Seven times, he says to his servant, go and check again because I'm going to pray and God is going to fulfill his word to Israel. So he said there was going to be no rain and then he says rain is coming. And so for an agricultural-based society, rain was huge. So it would have devastated the economy, no rain, but the rain coming again would have revived the economy. It would have been brilliant. And it says this, and he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So what's happened here? Again, the prophet is commanding the king, and the right order has been restored where the word of God is supreme, and everyone else obeys that, even the king. And he tells him to leg it. He says, Elijah, uh, he says, Ahab, you need to go because the rain's coming, there's going to be a lot of rain, and your chariot ain't going to work. It's not four-wheel drive. You know, it hasn't got that stuff. It's going to rain. Everything's going to get muddy. You need to get home. And he says, it's going to be a great rain, which would be more significant than just a bit of, bit, bit of pitter-patter. It's going to, the heavens are going to open. And this is the final sign that God, the Lord of Israel, is the supreme God. He is he's the only God. Baal just cannot stand against that. Baal couldn't bring the rain. The Lord will bring the rain. And it's a reminder of the Lord's power over nature and over human affairs. And the rain also is a sign of blessing. Throughout our Bibles, when we talk about the rain coming, and you read it in the prophets, it's a sign of the blessing of God on his people. So God is now going to bless the land because they have turned back to him. They have repented of their sin, and the abundant blessing of God is coming. It's like an exclamation point on what happened on Mount Carmel, the victory over the prophets of Baal. God is saying, yes, I am God. I'm in charge. And so Ahab takes off for Jezreel where he had a palace. He's kind of going home. That's his place. And so he gets on his chariot and he goes there. And it says, Elijah gathers up his garment. So he had a, would have had a long robe on. Presumably he had to hitch it up. Um, not particularly dignified. And then he goes before Ahab. 
Now, we're not sure if that's kind of, is that in supernatural power? Is he running just fast in the chariot or is the chariot just slow because the rain has come? It's bogged down and so he's just coming before. But what the point is, is the situation has been restored, which means the prophet goes before the king as the herald. The prophet goes before the king because he heralds the word of God. He proclaims it. The king isn't the one in charge per se. The Lord is the one in charge. He is the true king and his prophets who proclaim the word of God. And Elijah represents that as the one who's been consistent throughout this. He goes before the king to the king's place of power, his palace in Jezreel, and goes ahead of him as it should have been. So when he would have come to the gate, he would have been the first one there, and he would have proclaimed the victory of the Lord um, over Baal, and over he was now supreme in Israel. So the people had turned back, the prophets of Baal had been defeated, it was like victory time. If you're coming in, you'll be doing the dance, and be like, yeah, and the king's behind you, and everything has been restored, everything is right with the world in terms of from the prophet's eyes everything's going good big thumbs up there'd be high five all that kind of stuff you know like um in the boxing when the prize fighters come out and they do that it'd be going down like that that would have been brilliant but i said there are highs and lows in following the lord and then we get the turning point so then we, we flip over to a new chapter And what happens, we look at verse 1 and 2, everything is going well. The Lord is victorious, the prophet is on a high, the order has been established, the word of God is reigning supreme, the people are turned back to him. And then it says, verse 1, Ahab, the king, told Jezebel, his wife, all that had Elijah had done. So that would have been everything on Mount Carmel. So there'd be something along the lines of, how was your day, dear? as the king comes in, and there he would have laid out everything that happened. And it says how he killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Uh-oh. So he goes home, Ahab goes home to his wife, and we already know, His wife's not a great girl, not a good catch, theologically speaking. She is the one person in the land who is as committed to the worship of Baal as Elijah is committed to the worship of God. And so there is a clash of kingdoms coming back. And Ahab would have said to her, you know all those prophets that you used to feed at your table? They're all dead. Elijah killed them all. The nation has turned back to the worship of God. The fire fell. Baal is impotent. He cannot do it. He's just, he's not up to it. The God of Israel is the one who's in. And she flips out. Now, I know ladies don't do this, but she went off the deep end. She went up to 11 in her kind of response, in sort of like, ah! You know, you can imagine the wild eyes and the hair and the, you know, which I know doesn't happen, but in the Bible it does. Um, And so she is just flipping out. And we know she's got a history of going after the prophets of God. We actually read earlier that she'd gone around killing them. Elijah's managed to evade this by the grace of God. And so she's like, right, Elijah, I'm going to kill you, is effectively the summary of what it is. I'm going to do what you did to all those other people. I'm going to kill you. And I find it so ironic what she swears by. She says, she swears by the gods. I mean, the ones who've just been defeated. 
the ones who are, have no power and authority. You're going to swear by them, are you? The one that the Lord, the God of Israel, has proved he's the boss, he's in charge, he's won, but she's still hanging on to that. And she, she said, I swear by those gods, really. But she goes after Elijah, and so we've got this great spiritual high for the people of Israel, particularly Elijah. Everything's going great, kind of one, we're on the winning side. It, was just, it would have been a moment to treasure and it's one that we talk about thousands of years later. But then he faces, Elijah faces, a personal, specific, violent opposition from an individual who has no qualms about following it through. These are not empty words. She has killed before. She's killed prophets of the Lord. She has no problem with that. She's got no care about justice or due process or anything. I'm coming after you, Elijah, and I'm going to kill you. And so he faces a threat from a competent, capable adversary. And this isn't just a physical threat for his life. There's actually a spiritual dynamic as well as forces, dark forces that are opposed to the worship of the one true God are coming against it behind Jezebel. And so they all come after Elijah. And so he comes to Jezreel on a high, everything going well. And what he faces there is outright opposition from Jezebel and Ahab would have been involved as well. And so the ruling powers and authority of the nation are like, we're not having this. We are fighting back. And then we get to the lows of the story. So we've had the highs. We've had a turning point where this threat comes. And now we get to the lows. Verse 3. It says simply, Then he, that's Elijah, was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to to Judah, and he left his servant there. So in the response to the threat from Jezebel, the threat against his life, it says he was afraid. And if we look at his response, we can imagine that's a mild understatement. He would have been terrified. Now, this could have been uh, due to his fatigue, that he would have gone through. He's been through quite a kind of a tumultuous event. He would have been emotionally, physically drained. It could have been just flat out fear. It could have been part of a lack of faith. It could be a combination of all those things. He would have been um, worn out from what has happened over the previous kind of incident at Carmel and everything that happened there, plus the years of drought and just being under pressure. Um, and so he fears death the way Obadiah is. When we looked at that in a, few, a few weeks ago, that passage actually, uh, my life is on the line here. And suddenly it became very real and very personal for him. And he fears this could be the end of his ministry, could be the end of his time worshiping the Lord. If Jezebel kills me, I'm the Lord's prophet. Or who's going to speak the Lord of the land? All that thing came crashing in on him. And there was a loss of hope. Because he felt this was a turning point for Israel. They turned back to God. But then it comes down that actually those in the church are saying, we're not having this. We're going to come after you. We're going to do something about it. And so his hopes are dashed. He would have been disappointed. He'd have been downcast. All those things. And it says, he did a couple of things. First one, he ran. He ran. He fled from Jezreel, from where Jezebel was, that would have been her power base, and he went to a place called Beersheba, which is about a hundred miles away, and he would have had to get, kind of go there on foot, so he just ran and kept running. And if we know, uh, if you listen back, I remember back to some of the earlier sermons, we know the situation at the time, the people of God had actually split in two 
Um, and there was the northern king of Israel where all this is taking place. And the southern king was called, kingdom was called Judah. And so he ran from Israel. And it says it's in Judah. So he actually crossed into the southern kingdom. So he didn't just run 100 miles away. He left the country, in essence. And he went to the neighboring one, the neighboring kingdom. I'll get away from her influence as far as I can, not just with distance, but also kind of with jurisdiction and authority. I'll go where there's another king and someone else. So he wants to get as far away from Jezebel, far away from Mount Carmel, because Mount Carmel was in the north of Israel, right up here. Then he had to go to Jezreel, and he just went straight south to Beersheba. He just wanted to get away from everything. He just ran. He also, he says, not just he ran, he isolated himself. He separated himself from him. He even said to his servant, nope, you stay here. He left his servant. So any support network, we've met the servant already in the story. He's around. He's wanting to go up seven times and look for the cloud. But even dismissed him, left behind. He kind of gave up on everything. And commentators say this was a sign of almost Elijah giving up on his ministry as the prophet because he dismissed the, the one who kind of served with him, who worked with him, and he's just, he's just He's just gone a complete collapse emotionally in everything that's happened. And what has been the great victory of his career, if you will, has now turned to defeat in the matter of what? Two verses? Three verses. He's gone from high to low, just like that, from mountaintop to valley in a moment when he's faced outright opposition. What was victory? Um, has now been turned into a defeat. He's just run and he's falling apart. And it says, uh, pick up in verse 4, it says, But he himself, he's left his servant behind, it's Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now. O Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. So having run from the threat in Jezreel, in Jezreel, in Israel, he's crossed over the border into Judah to a place called Beersheba. He's then dismissed his servant. It says then he's gone another day's journey. I don't know how many miles that would be, but there's a significant distance where you can travel in a day into the desert, into the wilderness where there's nothing and basically just collapsed through exhaustion of what's happened. He has isolated himself from everyone. He's clearly not uh, thinking clearly. He's overcome with disappointment and hopelessness and despair and probably physically exhausted from the travel of what he's done as well. And he even gets to a point where he prays that he might die. The last time Elijah prayed in this story, he was calling down fire from heaven to prove the victory of God over the false god of Baal and his prophets. And so you've got this incredible contrast from in one moment he's praying an awesome prayer. Imagine that, Lord, send fire. And I, would, I would live on that for decades. I prayed and this happened. But within... I don't know how long that was, not long, a few verses. He's now, he's now praying again. He's saying, God, kill me. You think they're, they're poles apart, they're extremes. Elijah is just down for the count in this situation. It is a total turnaround. And what happens? Pick it up in verse 5, and it says, And behold, 
An angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So in this situation, Elijah is a servant of the Lord. He's been following God. We've followed his adventures. We've followed the things he's done. He's had this great victory. He's now at the lowest point we found him thus far in his ministry. And what is the response of the Lord? He comes and ministers to his servant at his lowest point. He actually doesn't do it once. He does it twice. The Lord appears to Elijah in the wilderness. And the first thing he does, he says, is he, he deals with his physical needs. It's ironic when we're doing the well-being course, isn't it? What's the first thing they, they talked about there? It was actually looking after our physical well-being. Because once you looked after yourself, you can deal with so much more. You can actually be talked to and reasoned with if you're physically at a level. And so the first thing he does is he comes out and he provides food and drink for him. Which, interestingly, is what God has been doing all along. He went to the brook Kerith. In the first week, and what happened? The ravens came and brought him food, and there was a brook to drink. Then he moved him up to Zarephath, um, which was outside the kingdom of Israel. And again, he provided miraculously with the oil and the flour to provide food for his servants. So God is doing what he's always done. He is looking after his people. And what we have here, if we have echoes back to the Exodus, where God led his people out of Egypt under Moses into the wilderness. And what did God do in the wilderness? He provided for his people. There was water that came from the rock and there was the quail and manna that God provided supernaturally for Israel so they could eat, they could be looked after. And the Lord deals with the most basic needs of his people by providing food for them, even at their lowest point. So Elijah ate and slept. So he got up, he was strengthened, and then what did he do? He went back to sleep. <laughs> so actually he was like, he was still exhausted. I've had some food, that's great. So we lay down and went to sleep. So the Lord woke him again. And touched him and said, arise and eat. Oh, there's more food. Or maybe he still had leftovers. We're not quite sure. But there was definitely food. So God made sure he was physically recovered from his ordeal. And then he says, right, we've got to go. We've got some business to do. Because we're going to go to Horeb, which is the Mount of God. Now, this is also known by another name in the Bible. And that is Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is the place where God met the people of God. And they came out of Egypt. And where God gave them the Ten Commandments with Moses and manifested his glory on the top of the mountain. So the Lord has dealt with Elijah's physical situation and he is now leading him towards a spiritual encounter with the Lord in Sinai or Mount Horeb as it is mentioned here. But I will leave it there because Matt is going to deal with that next week. All right. So we'll see what happens when he gets to Mount Horeb. Let's look at a little bit of application for this, and then I will finish. Three things I want to highlight for this message for us today, and sort of talk about how we can apply that and what that means for us. As followers of Jesus, we face highs, we face lows, and we face enemies in this life along the way. And the first thing is there are highs to following Jesus. Following Jesus has many, many highs. Elijah had significant high moments, if you will, following the Lord. He had the miraculous provision 
at the brook Kerith where the ravens came and fed him. And even though there was a drought, he had uh, water to drink um, in the provision of the screen. There was when he went to um, Zarephath and the widow was there. He miraculously provided oil and flour um, so that they could eat through the period of drought there. Then there was the widow's son then died and he prayed and the child was raised from the dead. The first time that happens in our Bible, if we're going from the beginning, never happened before. Elijah had done that. He had the fire falling from heaven at his command, his word. He said, Lord, send the fire. And it came, a torrent of divine fire fell on the altar, burned up the offering, burned up all the water that had been put there. And the nation of Israel returned to the worship of God in revival power. Awesome. There are some incredible highs following the Lord. God moves in power. He answers the prayers of his people. His kingdom is always advancing. And we too, as followers of Jesus, can live and have some of these high moments in our lives. When we become Christians and we've been born again for the first time and we put our faith and trust in God and we were once dead and we are now alive, it can be one of those, whoa, life will never look the same again. We walk after the Lord. We pray and see prayers answers. We have friends and families who also turn and follow the Lord with us. We see the sick healed when we lay our hands on them. We hear God's voice as we read his word and we turn to him in prayer and he speaks to us. We come together as part of the church family and we worship together and we do life together and we serve one another and we see breakthrough in people's lives in things that have bound us back and we get to stand alongside another. We see miraculous provision in lives where God just comes and meets us in our needs. Uh, we see uh, ministries and churches started. We discover callings and giftings. We use our spiritual gifts, God, the things that God has given us to serve his people. We hear powerful sermons. I feel, I feel that wasn't quite where I wanted it to land. And we enjoy being part of God's community. And all those things are our inheritance as the people of God. And they are wonderful things that we enjoy as being part of God's kingdom and part of God's people. And they're things that we are to, to celebrate, to praise God for, to turn it back to him, to say, thank you so much for all you've done in my life, all you've done in my family life, all you're doing in our church's life. All those wonderful things should always be turned back to praise. This week in the emotional kind of week, our emotional bell being one of the things, one of the days looked at um, gratitude. I don't know if you've got to that where you kind of like, we need to be thankful. We should be the most thankful people as followers of Jesus. And I reminded, oh yes, I'm trying to make sure I have an attitude of gratitude and to be thankful for all the things that God has done, the things, the amazing things, also the seemingly small things. We need to be uh, thankful people. So we celebrate God's love. We tell others when something's happened. If I was Elijah and I had done just a fraction of those things, oh, you would know about it. If I had prayed and only a small fire had come down from heaven, you'd have known about it. It would have probably got bigger with telling, fisherman tale, but I would have still done that. I'd have still been telling them, and we celebrate, and we tell stories, and this builds up our faith, and this encourages us. It's great to hear testimonies of what God has done in people's life, other people's lives. We ask for more. It's great to see God move, but what's the response? That was amazing, Lord. Do it again. Keep going. We have to pray that. Jesus said, this is how you pray. Let your kingdom come. 
And to keep praying, let the word of God go forth, let lives be changed, let God's kingdom break in on earth, injustice, let the poor be fed, all those things. And we are to be a brave people, we are to say yes to what God's done in our lives. If we pray for things to happen, when opportunities come, we step out in them, whether it's in our families, in our homes, in our work, and we walk in what God has got for us. And we have life groups in the churches, wonderful places to share this and do life together and to celebrate all those things. So there are wonderful highs to following the Lord and things that we should celebrate and talk about and pray for more and enjoy those things. But the second thing that we need to be aware of is that following Jesus has enemies. Following Jesus has enemies. Following, being a follower of Jesus puts you very firmly on one side which means there are those on the others who will stand against you. Elijah had that in the form of the evil king Ahab, and in particular his conniving, vicious, ruthless wife Jezebel, who physically threatened his life, and she had form. She'd killed before, she would kill again other prophets. And we too, as followers of Jesus, face enemies. And if you read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle Paul outlines these and he describes them as the, the world, uh, the flesh, and the devil. They're the three kind of areas that the Christians face, followers of Jesus face. The world represents cultures and worldviews that are contrary to what God says, contrary to his word, contrary to the Bible, whether in materialism or atheism or naturalism or anything, the desire for instant gratification, self-centered, godless practices and thinking, anything that sets itself up against God and his word, that is the world and that is the culture and that is the air we breathe and we are shaped by that whether we know it or not because it's literally the world we walk in and it's all around us. Unless we are aware to it, alive to it, acknowledge it, we won't see it for what it is and then be able to stand against it and say actually we won't go down that line because the word of God says something different. We will honor the Lord and we'll find ourselves in the same position as Elijah. You're going to follow God or you're going to follow Baal. You need to make your choice there. Then there's the flesh, Paul talks about, the apostle Paul talks about, which is um, our own sinful desires. It's not the physical body we have. It's not like there's something wrong with our bodies and we should hate them or, or anything like that. Bodies are good. God gave us. We enjoy them. But actually within us we have a sinful desire to go against the Lord and his commands. We have a desire to satisfy ourselves and not honor him. We have cravings, whether it be cravings for sexual gratification or for money or for power or for possessions. Whatever it is, there is our flesh that wars against the purposes of God and we need to be aware of that. And there are times when we have to put ourselves down in the sense of actually not give in to our natural desires because actually they would lead us away from the word of God. They would lead us away from truth and ultimately bring us harm. And then finally there is the devil, Paul said, which is, represents the spiritual powers that are opposed to God. There are active spiritual powers in this world. There are ones that serve the Lord. We've had angels mentioned, but there are those opposed to God. The devil kind of represents that, but also demonic powers and the life which come against him, who are an outright opposition to his rule. And these manifest 
uh, in the world today, whether it's through outright persecution of Christians, whether it's through ostracism of actually ignoring them, whether it's um, through criticisms and accusation, it's constant temptation we found, it's maybe it's even unforgiveness and bitterness in our own life that we give into, whether it's belittling of the church and of Jesus and of all the things that he would stand for. And as followers of Jesus, we need to recognize that we are up against real enemies who hate us and want to destroy us. And ultimately, it's because they hate Jesus and want to destroy Jesus. It's not because of us per se, but because we are in Christ, we face the same threat. Everything Jesus faced in his life, we, we too will face. And we shouldn't be surprised of that um, as a result. And we have to grapple with this. And we have to be aware of this. And we have to just, as we approach life, we approach culture, we have to make good choices, wide choices. And we have to question things. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we watching this? Why are we agreeing with that? We need to be alert by reading our Bibles and prayer because if we know what the Word of God says, we'll know what God wants and then we can actually stand against what He doesn't stand and say, I'm not going to that. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to have that because the Word of God says something different. So we need to be men and women who read our Bibles, who pray, who love the Word, who are part of God's family. You are a fool if you separate yourself from the people of God like Elijah did with his servant. He just went off on his own. That is the worst place you can be. We need to repent of bad attitudes towards that, get stuck into God's family, and alongside that we walk together and we help one another. And the last thing, following Jesus has lows. We've done highs, we've had enemies, and now we've got lows. Sorry, it's just going down and down. Elijah faced threats in his life which utterly terrified him, caused him to run away. And that opposition overwhelmed him and he felt dejected and hopeless and alone. And as followers of Jesus, we too can face those low times. They are not, because we are Christians, doesn't mean we're exempt for that. If you were ever told that, follow Jesus and everything will be um, good and rosy, you were lied to. And I'm sorry about that. But the truth is, there are highs, but there are also lows. We take them. The apostle Peter who was a best friend of Jesus, wrote this. He said, Beloved, he's talking to those he loves in the church. He says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. <laughs> Don't be surprised when things come on you, when you face opposition, when things are hard, when you're down. He knew about the, uh, the enemies we face, uh, the sin flesh, the devil, all those things. He says, Do not be surprised about them. We just have to look at the example of the Lord Jesus and all that he faced. He faced opposition, he faced criticism, he faced rejection from his family, he faced betrayal, he faced physical assault, and ultimately he was murdered. All those things happened to him, and if they happen to him, they will happen to those who are in him, followers of him, Christians like us. And so when we face those trials, when we face those lows, when we feel that season coming on us, we need to be honest. We need to be honest with God, first and foremost, about how we're doing. We need to be honest with ourselves and we need to be honest with others as part of our kind of church family. We need to process pain and anger and disappointment because if you do not, it will eat you alive. It will come and it will just like a cancer rip you apart. And you may look fine on the outside, but inside you will be a mess of bitterness and unforgiveness. And so processing that, acknowledging that in prayer, and that might mean shouting and screaming and yelling and crying, God can cope. But we need to be those people who are honest with that. We need to be part of a community. Do not isolate yourself from others in this situation. It's the one thing you'll want to do, and it's the one thing you need to resist. 
Be part of a community. Be honest with others. Tell them what's happening. And keep doing the little things. Eating and sleeping. It's amazing how God takes care of the most basics. You need to get some food and you need to have a sleep. And when you've done that, we can actually tackle it. And so when we're physically and emotionally exhausted, having a good meal and going to bed is a good thing. Just to make sure we're fit and ready to face what's happened. And then we meet with God, we read our Bibles, we pray, we take one day at a time, knowing that God is good and he will work it through us. And as our final thing, I'll end on a high, I can't just end on lows. Jesus is a better Elijah. Jesus is a better Elijah. Jesus faced the incredible highs of ministry. You just have to read a gospel. There were crowds coming to him. There were miracles, jaw-dropping miracles. There were healings and driving out evil spirits. There was powerful preaching. But he had enemies who came against him. And it wasn't just one or two. It was the full force of the world, the flesh and the devil, that tried to push Jesus off his path. He faced... um, Religious opposition, family opposition, temptation in the desert. Read that in Luke 4 to the fullest extent. He had verbal and physical assaults. He had misunderstanding. They told lies about his character. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was killed. But through it all, he remained perfect. And he remained true to his calling as Savior. He knew his identity in God as God the Son, who he was. And he did not waver and he did not fail. And as a result, he emerged triumphant and glorified. And so we, too, as we face this, we know that we are in him. And so whatever situation we find ourselves is, we know we have a victorious king and savior. We know someone who's been through everything we've been through and way worse and emerged victorious and he is with us and our future is secure and the victory is certain. And if you don't know Jesus here today, I just want to give the opportunity to do that. He loves you. He is for you. He is the Lord and Savior over everything. He has died to pay the price for the sins that you've committed so you don't have to. All you need to do is turn, put your faith and trust in him. Turn away from your old way of life. That means repent. Come and put your faith and trust in him. We'd love to talk to you about that um, at the end. If you want to know more, please come and grab me. or some down here at the front and we will pray with you and stand with you and love you through that. Do you want to end? Can the band come up? I'm going to just pray a bit try and earth some of this and then we're going to meet with God together as his people so do you want to stand up oh that's not okay